I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I remember being in the club and the paratrooper when I said to him, all right, lucky you look nice. And he went, and it was like the rave days of Hassan. He went, what do you mean not nice? And he bent my nose around and snapped it. And I went, right, I'm going back to London. <laughs> this is Music Made Me Do It, a podcast from Loud and Quiet magazine. I'm Stuart Stubbs, and each week I'll be speaking to people who felt compelled to start their own successful companies within the music industry. When you think of the term talent agent, you might have an image that instantly comes to mind, and that image might be Tom Cruise jumping up and down and shouting, show me the money, or Ari Gold flexing around Hollywood in a suit that's too tight for him. From what I can tell, Alex Hardy doesn't fit either of these cliches, but he certainly is aware of them. In 2019, the company he was a partner in, Coda, merged with the US agency Paradigm, where Alex still heads up the UK side of the business today. Alex himself is the live agent for artists including Liam Gallagher, Jess Glynn, Lewis Capaldi and Sia. And what I was most taken aback by when I met him at the Paradigm offices was just how many agents they have working there. This is clearly not the independent music world that I'm used to, even if Paradigm do represent a lightning bolt and let's eat grandma for every chart-topping pop star they work with. With 30 years of experience behind him, I wanted to ask Alex exactly what it is that a live agent does and how he ended up forming a company that would merge with such a big American agency just five years after they started working together. My knowledge of the live side of the music industry is limited to say the least. Like most people, I go to gigs and I'm aware of the fact that there's a promoter behind the show. But where does the live agent fit in and how did Alex Hardy become such a successful one? I began, as I often do, by asking him to explain exactly what it is that a live agent does. When I meet an artist, I will sort of ask them if they know that, because a lot of people just assume these people, and especially a lot of the young kids and the pop acts that have just walked through the door, that actually know, they just meet 100 people and 100 meetings, and I I sort of say, what does an agent, do you know what an agent does? A lot of people have the word agent and that's formed from films like Jerry Maguire or a lot of Hollywood incantations and so people think that agents in music which is different from film and TV is that they look after everything to do with the artist Mm. and an agent only looks after a very specific part of the artist so an agent really just looks after the live strategy and negotiates the live contracts and the touring. I get 18,000 emails a month at the moment and 30% of them are from things, people just going, I'm a photographer, can I, I want to be, be your artist, I'm a stylist, can I 
do your artist I'm, or I want to recall with your artist so we don't deal with any of that stuff the manager in music looks after everything outside of the live stuff and I don't actually deal with the artist which I say to them when I meet them I said I'm not going to be dealing with you on a day-to-day -day basis I'll be dealing with your manager and the manager and us will form the strategy and what you should be doing live and then eventually we make no money and then eventually we'll probably be your first major source of income because that the life if it's going well the life size seem will pay out quicker than your recording or your publishing deals but then we're responsible for negotiating the the fees and and as you get even bigger mainly we're just fending people off right that's what we do is police what's coming in because everyone you get a gig everyone wants to book you so we need to know the right things to book you in and we get rewarded by that by taking a percentage of whatever fee we negotiate that's a traditional agent and that's a traditional agent in what's happened in the UK or Europe for the last 40, 50 years. But what I've tried to develop at Coder is I've tried to develop a bit more of a 360 model now, like the American agencies. So I've invested heavily, as you said, you just walk through the door and you can't believe how many people worked, worked here. So we have like a branding team. So I don't think any other agencies in the UK really have more than one people dealing with brands. So I have 10 people now in branding from, because I've developed also the sports side of things. I have a specific sports brand team, a corporate booking team, which is three people just looking, just doing corporate shows. We have a two people just in street branding, two people in mainstream branding. So when we've dealt done a deal with ITG so we've got the film TV you've got Daniel Craig Liam Gallagher and now we've got some football players in the room that attracts the brand so we want to put a proper branding team in place so we're looking to offer a more 360 service so we're not just going to be doing booking the live gigs which is, but the music's going to be our primary thing and to build that brand but we are now offering a brand strategy you know we have we have a literary department that can if you want to write a book we do have an acting, and you know, we, we have got the best acting agency in the UK if someone wants to investigate that road. One of our artists had a script they wanted to write, we took it to ITG and that's now starting to go into production. So we're looking at providing more 360 um, service, but, but also music will always be the most important. You know, I say to the young artists again, you know, We've got all these things, but unless you build some sort of brand in music, no one's going to want to really be interested in. Yeah, yeah, sure. For all the people that are sat outside this room, like yeah. uh, at that desk and stuff, how does like, if you're an agent here, do you does it work? Do they just have their own rosters that they deal with? Do they? Do, is there? How how does that work? Are they are they? They're obviously not in competition with each other, but like, mm, I mean, that's how I started, and that's what I didn't like was you were your own island and you, you I mean was there's someone I took from another agency and it wasn't that long ago I think it was eight years ago and when I was asking them what they were looking at I said before we were discussions I said what are you looking at then what acts and they went well I can't tell you that and this is when they joined here I went what do you mean you can't tell me that they went you're trying to steal them off me right and I went well, I'm going to try and help you try and get them you know so we're very collaborative so I think in this company now there's 22 agents and we try not to really put different levels on names or CEOs or senior agents or junior agents but we sort of have two definitions I mean I've, I've got a special agent on my um, 
business cards, but um, well, I don't have met business cards anymore, but uh, you've got agents and then bookers. Unfortunately, like most companies, we've got, I think we've got 20 male agents and two female agents. But what I've tried to do is readdress is that I think now we have 10 bookers and eight of them are female and two of them are male. The way we try and work it is that if two people work on every act, minimum, that's generally how it works, a senior person and a junior person, and we have an intranet system, so when people want to look after an act, they put it up and it goes to all 2,000 employers in the company, and anyone else who knows any information will feed in. Beforehand, when we were working as a small company, everyone got very ashamed of losing an act. Like, you know, people hid it, and I know, you know, and I was the same, and I noticed people lose an act, and not, you know that they'd lost it, but they wouldn't actually tell the agency, and it would be three or four weeks, and, but you'd hear it through the other thing, in the, through the promoters or other things, and, it, you know, there's not, you know, everyone's going to lose an act in their life, so I think I took the lead there, for, and I lost one of my big acts, Calvin Harris, and... I just got the hold of the company. It wasn't a big company at that time, and it was 20 people. And, and I just stood up and told them, like, you know, look, I've lost this act. It's a big act. You know, there's there's a there's three reasons why I lost it. You know, and I was honest, and it wasn't the normal thing when people lose acts, and they it's everyone else's fault. There was reasons we weren't a big enough company. I'd made mistakes. And that we started opening that open dialogue each time. So when you do lose something or you don't get something or you don't go your way, then we're all into actually talking and analysing why these things happen. And, you know, that's now, that's commonplace. And I think in a lot of companies in music and where there's a lot of passion, then that isn't common. That, that wasn't commonplace. So I think mean, that's one of our major reasons of success is we're quite open about things and yeah sometimes you do get fucked over but nine times out of ten when you lose something you do something wrong it's because there's a reason mm. so how did and i've got the best bit of advice i got was five years beforehand when i lost the scissor sisters and john giddings rang me up and said alex if you want loyalty get a dog so i got a dog and that ran away as well <laughs> <laughs> so how did you start in how did you start in your career how, where, did, where did that begin i started just in comedy Right, as an agent? Yeah. Okay, how, how long ago was that? 30 years ago, I reckon. Okay. In Manchester, while I was at university, was booking Frank Skinner, Steve Coogan, okay. Caroline Hearn, Eddie Izzard, I used to book gigs. I wasn't specifically their agents, but it was all a very... Was that you, was that you were putting on comedy nights and you were booking them? I was booking comedy nights and I was booking them to the universities as well, right. doing sub-bookings. I was doing my own nights in Manchester and started up Northwest Comedian of the Year. My brother was a comedian. He sort of was known as the godfather of alternative comedy, so he was obviously helping me get the contacts. Mm. And then it all went a bit wrong. Yeah? Uh, what happened? Manchester was a bit mad at that time. It's called Gunchester or Manchester, you might remind. Right, yeah. So I actually had, I literally had in my run in a comedy agency called Ha Ha Hardy Arts, I had an ex-paratrooper who was having like, what's that thing? They didn't have it diagnosed then, what's it oh, called? Oh, like post-traumatic stress. Post-traumatic stress plus a Chelsea headhunter. As I bought a house and they were renting it out. He was like moaning and had a hit list of all my friends under his bed. The other one, and there was also quite a lot of drugs involved at the time, because it was Manchester, so I had to, 
I basically had to sell half my business and run. I remember being in the club and the paratrooper when I said to him, all right, Lockie, you look nice. And he went, and it was like the rave days of has anyone, what do you mean like nice? And he bent my nose around and snapped it. And I went, right, I'm going back to London. <laughs> <laughs> this is too much for me. <laughs> for paying someone a compliment <laughs> yeah that was the haciendas that was 89 90 i think something like around then right. and i went back to london i had made a little i don't know four thousand pounds whatever that's 30 years ago was i had my partner bought me out i had a partner at the time i went back to london my brother and my family lived there and i was the idea was i didn't know i've actually spent about a month two months just not doing anything because i had four thousand pounds and i was in london and so then i decided to apply to agencies and i applied to solomon parker's dad i don't know solomon parker used to work at with one of the vice presidents at william rice works here now and his dad owned an agency called concord he tells me that it's a different story to this but i remember it like this but um I applied to his dad's agency and um, I applied to lots of different jobs and I got a job back from him and you got you got didn't get emails you got letters then and um, he said come in for an interview because I said I was doing comedy and I'd, I was on gardening leave for a bit but in six months I could come back and work and do comedy and he was, comedy was getting started very big at that point so he came in and um, I sat down and he uh, Get, did the interview and no, before the interview I went into the toilet and there was a picture of my brother naked on the wall and I went how come you got a picture of my brother in the wall I mean he, he used to dance naked so it wasn't an unusual pose for him yeah. and he went well you're Malcolm Hardy's brother I thought you might be right you've got the job because I used to be his agent so I, I didn't know my brother used to have this agent um, called Louis Parker so I went there and I had to work out four or five months before I could go into comedy which I was going to go back into so two things happened in that time the first thing that happened was the person who was running the comedy club which was my comedy agency which I sold to him which was called Ha Ha Hardy Arts started not paying comedians and running it into the ground right so so the second thing that happened was I started booking lots of acts with Solomon. I, I don't remember. Enjoy the Prodigy were like we all used to share acts at that time, SL2, and you used to travel with the music acts. So when you did comedy, you just went to Barnsley or Huddersfield, or when you went with the, these acts, I was going to like Turkey and Greece, and I never travelled. So I thought music's a much more interesting thing. Right. So the f the fact that one by the time I, the six months was out my name was muck in the comedy world because even though it wasn't my business and i sold it it had my name on it and the fact i did music i transferred into doing music full time right that's how i got into music how does signing an act work as an agent is it the same as when a label signs an act to release records like how, how does no there's no money exchanged okay so you have to and there's no contract exchange because you can't technically sign an artist without so this i mean they used to try and put contracts but you're governed by the agency law so you can unless there's an exchange of cash you, you can't that you can't restrict people's employment so you just basically pitch you'll probably get pitched to the artists that you have a have some sort of familiarity or they you're you know like they like your roster you know like so and the bigger your acts are the better the more successful generally you are at getting new acts mm. but you also do have to you know 
because I started with nothing so you do get to a point but it's a lot easier to walk in a room and say I look after Sia, Liam Gallagher, Janet Jackson, I don't know, Louis Capaldi, Jesklin, whatever, you know, I mean, then if you've got nothing, yeah. it, it, it opens the doors but then you do have to put a strategy forward and and your company helps as well, you know, so Paradigm obviously has a great name, you know, it's got Ed Sheeran, Coldplay, you know, there's a lot of a ream of names you can reel off, which that gets you definitely in the door. Plus, it's not a big business over here, so, you know, your reputation, people can very quick, you know, it's a lot easier nowadays to find out about someone in four emails than it was. It was a lot more smoke and mirrors, and that's why it wasn't such a great business in my um, opinion, because there was a lot of bad, people that <laughs> did behind names but you know it's very easy to get a reference from yeah. people if you know what you're doing now but yeah what you do is you're now you know there's you know in this uh, in england it's caa paradigm you know william morris are sort of now probably you know caa and paradigm are two big agents william morris over here probably not as big massive in america though and you know you get to sit down all of us have equal size big names that we can press and then you have to put out a strategy and sell yourself to the manager and the artist yeah whereas there is a financial element when the record label goes one will go i'll give you 250 and a two album year deal we don't have any mechanic to negotiate so is it a case of having to go out like especially in the early days when you didn't have anyone I would not be able to, me and the partners, the other partners is James and Tom Schroeder, we would not have been able to achieve now in 20 years what we've achieved from 20 years ago because there aren't any gigs to go to like and picture these bands and everything, you know, I I would not like to be a small independent agency now because you're going to get, I don't think you can get that level of growth that we experienced or, you know. William Morris, strangely enough, was probably the most important thing to making us successful because they came over here when we were a decent size agency, I don't know, 12 or 14 years ago, and you know what British people are like, and they're a big American agency, and they came and they were, you know, quite rude and said, they used to call us Tesco's, where they used to go and do our shopping, their shopping, and it sort of brought us all together with this sort of bulldog mentality, so now it's you know we didn't even everyone wasn't really using email you know it's such a different business and streaming and the record label it's so more you know corporate and back then how what was the first thing that you started rapping music wise the first the first thing was djs and electronic pas like and it was and i didn't even look after them everyone looked after a pool of acts in concord then I got Ronnie size, I suppose, was the first thing that broke through, and you know, not me. From he, he, you know, he had the vision to put a live band together. He won a Mercury Prize, and then that was sort of the first, my first foray into serious booking bands with percentage deals. And then I think Bentley Rivernace, and then the Scissor Sisters. I, you know, I somehow some bloke from university gave me Zomba Records, gave me a record, and then I remember coming home from a club, not burst aware, and hearing the same song again on radio being played by Pete's on Company Numb, and I went, well, that's a good song. So then I, I went, I, I just looked at them, and all the sound were talking to them, and I did all their acts. I flew over to New York, and somehow I managed to convince them to go to me, but they, you know, they were, that act wouldn't have been still underground, and every agency would have been going for them nowadays. But I managed to get them, I flew over to New York, and they became the biggest act in the UK for a while. Mm. I couldn't hold on to them at that point, but, and then Mika, 
and then by that point the company had established itself we got some more we got these I don't know, I can't remember all the acts but Ellie Goulding came through and then we just got more and more critical mass and till we are at the point now how many competitors do you have like th- three it's a small world right so in England there's really like we're music agencies and we're trying to be more than a music agency and CAA I'm, I'm, I don't know them inside out but I'm, I'm, I, they used to have branding people but we're trying to we've got a mixed martial arts agency in here now we've got a football agency and they're developing other sports so we're trying to make the and we, you know, as I said we've got the film and TV and the literary so we're trying to copy the American model so we're quite advanced in that compared to I think the other agencies over here but in America then you have CIA and William Morris, UTA and Paradigm and William Morris and CIA are more advanced in terms of not the music side but the literature and talent side They're, you know massively old agencies some of them like been going since uh, William Morris uh, hundreds of years old so yeah. you know so but over here when we normally compete then I, me personally I'd be either competing usually nine the other the other agency is CAA sometimes a bit of William Morris whereas someone else who's maybe doing more independent music might be competing with a 13 artist or a free trade but you know that's that's the more independent side of the music that probably you do but for pop music and mainstream music it's yeah generally there's four four, yeah. four agencies worldwide that are yeah, competing yeah. It sounds like, because obviously the music industry is in such a moment of complete flux and streaming and the decline of the album, all of those sorts of things, it sounds like live music is the, is the place where most is the healthiest. No, it's not. Is it not? No, it's record, streaming is massive. Is that money getting back to the artist? Well, it will do. It just means one's, you know, the deals are, they're only, you know, you do five-year deals, so they're, they're going to change and... Yeah, but I mean, the record labels have never been so rich for me I mean, for since the live, the live, someone like Code is doing well, but I think thing, the promoters, there's too many acts fighting for the same spots as there was. I can't remember the statistic, but did they sign 2,000 new acts a month at the moment, the record labels? Right. I can't remember, but it's a stupid amount. How many things are on New Music Friday? So there's lots of stuff that's fighting, and there's lots of stuff that is mid-range stuff that's fighting for the same stuff. and. There's probably more tickets being sold on different things, as you can see by the Live Nation share statistic, but um, not all these events have been as successful, so you need to resell X amount of tickets on each thing to break even, and then you make the promoter makes profit. I think that's becoming tougher. It used to be a 100% business, it's now an 80% business, so... Yeah, I think there's been 20, 16 years of continual growth in live and it feels like it's slowed down. Right, I think okay. we'll do well because I think, unfortunately, smaller fleet agencies will, as I said earlier, they're going to struggle and things will fold into bigger things. Yeah. But yeah, streaming is massively bringing lots more income to the record labels, which mm-hmm. I guess at some point someone will work out how that's going to get to the artists, you know, there's only going to, you know... Taylor Swift's tried to do it, hasn't she, I think? Right? Yeah. She's trying to, you know, someone's going to get it right and that will become the norm. That's what always happens. Yeah. Mm. So in terms of your, like, working relationship in the industry, is an agent's kind of key relationships with promoters or with managers or with artists who, like, 
who are you mostly because me as a as a music journalist that writes my key contacts are always the, the press, press people, people yeah. yeah yeah so who, who no, primarily managers secondary you know like it depends what level i'm operating i'm very you know i'm in with all the record label mds and i like to look at it as a more of a 360 picture is you know the promoters I'm very in with the promoters as well, but you know, I, I choose the promoter to use on each act for what who I think is best and who's you know generally now who's got the best portfolio of festivals that I think that act will need to use. If I give you know, if you're hot, when I have quite a lot of hot acts, then anyone can promote that act. You know, you don't promote no one. It doesn't matter how many you're not handing out leaflets anymore. Everyone knows. Someone if there's an act on, then if someone wants to go to that, they know where it is. So the art of promoting sort of diluted a bit than it was when I began and some, certain promoters were better because they'd have everyone going out getting the leak but that information's information's readily accessible so oh. you know you're mainly going to buy a ticket for a f there is still a certain art of promoting but it's not as it, it's, it's not like it used to be when you could have some power weight promoters who could actually change there'd be a 10 or 15 percent difference in what they could sell you know there might be a one or two percent just because they've got better digital marketing but you know if i don't know jessica Lynn's going on sale next week then most of the people who like jessica Lynn will know about it the day after because they'd have some various they would have been hitting their instagram and what etc etc by that so you know you choose your promoter now for what else they can give what festivals they can provide where you know if you've got a pop act then you're going to go to ones with all the best pop festivals in each market or generally that's going to have its work there are obviously relationships and it does change from time to time and you don't want to give everything to one person and you have to distribute it because each of them has but my relationship is with promoters record labels managers and you know my relationship with most artists are some i have a closer relationship but I'm only meeting at the gigs, I'm not talking to them on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, sometimes they ring me for advice on live, but the manager has the real relationship with the artist generally. In your opinion, what makes a good agent? What are the big do's and big don'ts? Well, there's different styles, isn't there? So, passion can be great, but it can also can be a negative if it's, you know, my skill personally is, I think, is being able to look at everything from a, a big height and not hold back and say this is what's happening and being honest and some agents will go every single song that their new act's released is it's amazing this is great it's going to be written but it, it, it's not it's not that's never going to be the case unless well it sort of works if you're Ed Sheeran's agent but <laughs> but if you do that you're going to get found out and then people are going to go well I don't actually believe you anymore so but, so if you if you're straight and you say you know, there's different ways of selling things. If and my skill is like to, I like to look at myself quite level-headed. And when we're doing a campaign, not to be afraid to stand up in a meeting and saying, "Well, stop, stop reading out what press we're going to try and get, or what this isn't going right. This is where we need to adjust. That's what we're missing. We've got good high-line marketing. We're not getting any of the, the low-line marketing, and trying to access and how." you know, how to get that campaign back on course, you know. I mean, I literally don't book gigs much anymore at all. I don't need to do the mechanics of the day-to-day -day bookings of venues. So I'm more very looking at a high-line strategy, sitting down with my team, you know, I've got eight people and working out. And then I that frees up my time to pull the big favours on the festivals or the supports or the stuff. So, yeah. you know, book, actually ringing up and 
going for a costing and doing a booking and ruining the tourism what I do anymore because that's a waste of my expertise in my opinion. Along the way to get to this point, has there been any, like in your career, any kind of massive bumps in the road or like huge mistakes that you've learned from or like I won't do that again? Yeah, loads of things. Making mistakes is just another way of saying experience, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the secret is not to make the same mistakes twice or three times or four times in my life. <laughs> but, you know, like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the secret, isn't it? You know, when I started working with London Grammars, I made, you know, I made lots of, you know, lots of mistakes. Look, you know, like, ego is a bad mistake for an agent to have, I think, you know. I think, I think I've, there's been points in the past when I've got angry about things and not let it go that's another bad mistake um yeah you know it's just maturing isn't it like i'm, I'm i've learned a lot and there's a million mistakes i you know i'll learn things this week still that we can refine and have you seen what's that film called it's a documentary about the best sushi in japan jumanji dreams of fish something like that okay but it's just about how his sushi is the best so every day he he makes a small adjustment to get it perfect right that's what coda's like all the part we're just looking at making these small adjustments there's always something you can adjust mm. to get it right but you know we know we're not perfect you're never going to be perfect but it's just noticing these things you know we do work very well as a big organism that we feed into each other and very open and not scared to talk to people and it's strange that some big companies in the music industry don't work that and they still make everyone fight each other <laughs> mm. yeah yeah This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Suppose what, as a consumer of music and someone goes to gigs, Hmm. wouldn't understand is, say you've got Liam Gallagher Hmm. and you're putting on a show, like a promoter you want to work with wants to put on the show. How did like just the finances of that work, of them choosing the ticket price, how much you 
you get that deal how does that even deal even start to work out is there just like a kind of do you have I imagine in my mind you have a big spreadsheet and you know and you think okay they want to put on this gig for an artist who's playing at Brixton Academy I know that holds this many people mm. are doing three nights so, so so your skill as an agent is guessing the demand is that's another thing so right so the first thing you do is Liam Gallagher he's he's a, he's a big act so you know, you, you, you look at you look at eighteen months ahead of what you're going to try and do. You, you don't ever not want to sell out a show for Liam Gallagher. That's like a no-no. Mm. So you, and then you have to you have two things. You have your hardline tickets, you, have, you know, where you sell your tickets, and then you have your festivals. And nowadays you you sell your tickets, and that helps drive album sales with pre-orders and stuff. You know, you the big money's generally in the festivals now. So you don't want to bastardise the demand of the festivals, but you also have to do, there's a sort of a utility curve. You've got to do, you, you can't put Liam Gallagher doing the Shepherd's Empire as his tour and drive pre-sales, but then you don't want to put him in Wembley, two Wembley stadiums and not, you know, there's empty gigs. So you have to work out what the right size tour is. So you have that discussion. And then, you know, when you have that discussion, is that sometimes a hard discussion when somebody thinks they're bigger than they are? I'm very frank, and that's pretty much my best skill is getting demand at shows. And I do make mistakes, and it doesn't always work out, and no one's got a hundred percent track record. But you know, you can look at certain stats, and you know, if some sometimes people want to do a bigger gig, but you know, if you do Ali Pali and you sell five thousand tickets, everyone in the world can find out now. You, you, ten, I was saying this today in the agents meeting. I said ten years ago, people did statement gigs. They're doing O2, and then they just go to the festivals. We done an O2, and no one would know how many tickets you sold. But I can find out any ticket sale in even bands that are not for me within two emails. You know, two phone calls if I really wanted to. Yeah. It's just too, so there's not really smoking minutes. So you've got to get the right demand. So then what you do is you go, we want to. This is what we want to do. We want to do I don't know two O2s, two MENs, two Birmingham. That's what we want to do in the UK. In Europe, you want to do, I don't know, maybe it's not, the act's not as big. You want to do the elite, two Olympias, the AFAS in Amsterdam, and you work out the shows you want to do. Then you get all the availabilities, and then you try and route that into something sensible. So it works in a linear line. Yeah. And there's enough days off, and some acts want two days on, one day off, some will do three days off, and you know, but if you put this into an availability table and you run a program, you can actually work out what the best routing is and you, you want the shortest miles and then there's certain laws where you can't drive X amount of miles in Europe without having a double driver and that becomes expensive. Right. So you have, you know, it's, there's skills involved, but you know, and it's better to put the big gigs on the Friday and Saturday, obviously, but you know, so you have to move things around and then you get a tour. Then, you generally go and get the offers and then you look at the offers and all offers now is there's a standard thing that x you take versus 85 or versus 90 depending on the level the act is so you put the tour together and then what you go out to promoters and say who wants this no you choose a promoter first okay so what well, some people when you say you take when you say you go out and get the offers what you, well, you go to you route the tour and you're happy with the routing and then you generally go well, there's many ways that sometimes you that's the tradition that's the most obvious way is you think here we are and you go to the office and say what ticket price and you sit down and you go well let's work out what do you think the ticket price should be then you say it's 50 pounds and it's a it's a hundred 
so in a very layman term, say it's fifty pounds and it's ten thousand cap room, so the gross would be five hundred thousand, yeah? yeah. And then you take off PRS and VAT, and then you'd have a net. Then you've got loads of expenses that PA, or depending if you're travelling or not. But let's just say you've got marketing, yeah. venue hire, you've got X amount of costs. So you take the cost versus the off of what the gross is, and then you have a remains. Right. So say that was say that was half a million, and that went down to three four hundred after VAT and taxes or whatever, and it went down to two hundred after expenses. So there's two hundred grand left between the promoter and the artist. At that level, you know, generally it'll be ninety percent would go to the artist and ten percent would go to the promoter right. when they're going to sell the tickets. But it's generally assumed that at that level the artist is going to sell that venue out. So the promoter is getting twenty grand or whatever of ten percent of the thing. Mm. So that's sort of how it works. Okay. And then certain promoters like Live Nation usually own the ticketing company, so they make some more money on top. So then you try and fight for the rebates off of them. Right. Okay. And then so there's a lot more that goes into it. And then like in America, the merch deals are all targeted in with the venue, so you have to fight on the merch deals. But that's oh, so. Right, okay. But you generally that's standard over here. Okay. And then sometimes people want to cut down all the costings, and you know. And what if, say, for example, instead of a, not not in a tour. Let's say I just had a load of money and I came to call John and said, I'm really lovely him, can I go? I want to put on a show for him at the O2. Then you wouldn't get a chance of having it. Just would never happen. No. If you rang up and said, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, 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 I'm, the, head, I'm the head of Google and I'm having a party in my private house and here's $4 million, can I put Liam Gallagher? Then we'd say yes, probably. Yeah. But, it, it, but I mean, if I was a promoter, I mean, I don't mean if I was just some, yeah, but, some guy. If I, if I, but I wasn't like. Yeah, but the promoters. You know, like the, everyone's on the sort of the, it's the deals. We know what the deal, the deal is the deal. Mm. So that's why I'm saying the off. What you add as a promoter is what else you can offer. Right. So Liam Gallagher currently is working with Live Nation. They own Reading and Leeds and X festivals in Europe that he wanted to do. So you know, that's what a lot of people with money just think they can come in and go. Yeah, I want it. But it's not going to work like that. You know. Yeah. The, has like the analytics that are just available now as well, just across music, made it less risky because you no. know how popular something is? No, it was much easier. It's much easier now? No, before. Right. Because you Because there's less things going out there. Let's say in the indie heydays, there'll be a band, everyone hear about it, everyone would go and see them. One of the record labels would win them. One of the agencies would win them. They'd release their first single. It'll probably get on Radio One. It'll probably get on the NME. Everyone would know about them. They'd be quite successful quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's four media things that you needed to tick off. Get Radio One playlist, NME. Uh, I don't know. You know. Yeah. yeah. The the time, a Guardian, whatever. There was there wasn't that much culturally. Uh, you'll get on. And don't forget your toothbrush or whatever whatever I can't remember what, but there's five things you do and everyone knew about you in Britain basically in the youth culture yeah now you have to go to about a million different to create any noise you have to be in so many different things because it's so fractured so a record label you know the majors are like scratching their heads how do we break stuff you know they sign them then they go right and then you're getting little bits of things that, you know, it's, it's only the Lewis Capaldi's at the moment or the Billie Eilish's again, every, they've got everything that it's made enough noise that it's broken through. Mm. It's no good getting like, oh, you know, I've got a Radio 1 playlist. That used to be nearly 
guarantee you that you'd have if you didn't have a hit on Radio 1 that was a disaster if you you know people were scared to go on Radio 1 if they weren't going to get a hit now half the you know none of the playlist has been in the top 20 has it I mean <laughs> half I, I don't know I don't look at it every week I don't look at the stats but you know there's probably five tracks in the top 10 that aren't even on that playlist they're just broken through streaming and through being so it's not it's much harder to guarantee that success so how would you find a new act now like like your company how would I don't know, Lewis Blissett who I think I've got high hopes for is next year is or you know is Instagram has got developed 1.1 million followers on his own 16 year old kid so he knows how to talk to the generation you know so Halsey did that so Halsey came over and yeah very what's the word confident young woman sat down she went I said she didn't want to do a show and London went but this was like I don't know six seven years ago before all this really had Billie Eilish or Halsey phenomenal talking to your fans online had happened she went let's do a show in London I went but no one knows you in London she went they do I went what do you mean how do you know and she went I know they. I'm, she worked her own socials. Mm. We went, all right, well, let's do the barfly. And she went, well, I'll easy sell that. I went, well, let's just do the barfly. You know, put the barfly on sale. It eventually became Brixton Academy. You know, what I mean? like, right. there was no above line media. There was no Radio One play. There was no Times cultural piece. Mm. You know, so socials is important. There's, but then there's bands that you all look at. You, you know. The idols is a different sort of phenomenon, do you know what I mean? They've broken through live and through developing a strong fan base that spread the word organically. Mm. You know, you can't just put it into equation. Like some people have ten billion streams and you know, I messed up the other week on the night that I thought had so many streams and was the right look and would sell more tickets than it did and it hasn't, you know. Mm. Sometimes you just have to put a gig on now to work out how many people are gonna turn up. Music Made Me Do It is produced by Dream Team and Loud and Quiet and edited by Emma Snook. For more information, please visit loudandquiet.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app to receive all future episodes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to visibly firmer, summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. 
That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.